It's not just about the manger where the baby lay. It's not all about the angels who sang for him that day. It's not all about the shepherds on the bright and shining star. It's not all about the wise men who traveled from afar. It's about the cross. It's about my sin. It's about how Jesus came to be born once so that we could be born again. It's about the stone that was rolled away so that you and I could have real life someday. It's about the cross. It's not just about the good things this life I've done It's not all about the treasures Or the trophies that I've won It's not about the righteousness That I find within It's all about His precious blood That saved me from my sin It's about the Thanks for tuning in to the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast. We're your host, Brian, Nathan, and JC. Brian, you know what? Our boy Nathan this week got to experience a little bit of the life that me and you once lived and have done away with now. Well, you know, I could see the gleam in his eyes, and I thought to myself the second I saw that picture that Nathan is using his newfound fame in the RFP. <laughs> To open doors and to backstage with people. And, you know, he would have driven to Alaska to attend that concert and take that picture and <laughs> and be the all-access guy at the Ball Brothers concert. Guys, I'm telling you what, it was awesome. First of all, I love Christmas music. Second of all, Shout out. these guys are talented. They yeah, are, they are. They are good. I mean, it was it was unbelievable. So I, I really enjoyed it. And they're not just good singers, man. These are some great guys. Like, I've been watching the Ball Brothers. Here, here's the side. So I didn't know them as the Ball Brothers singing group. I did, obviously, because I know the Southern Gospel world. But we played softball against them. 
let's just be glad they sing. <laughs> we'll put it that way. So. Well, another thing I can say about the Ball Brothers is they're courageous mm-hmm. because I know their background. And when they transitioned from who they used to be and where they used to stand to who they are now and to where they stand now, they had some people really speak harshly uh, against them. They had some people challenge them. But, hey, those guys are courageous. They they pursued truth regardless of the cost. And so I absolutely respect the Ball Brothers. And if you look at them on iTunes, they had a new song that came out in April called Let It Rain that I, I actually like. It's a really good song. But their picture is a little cutting edge. I mean, they look like they're like men in black. I mean, they're dressed up with their black suits on, and they got these aviators on. I was like, these guys are some cutting edge Southern gospel singers. Get on board, Karen Peck Gooch. Next level. Yeah, so Nathan, did you really enjoy it that much? And 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 you would have you would have ran a Spartan race to be in that picture. Like I saw your face and it was like, yeah, I'm Nathan Cravat. I I get to attend <laughs> private concerts with all access. That's just with how just the family that's there. And Nathan so it was really cool being able to attend in person. There were a lot of people online saying how jealous they were. Well, they had reason to be jealous. I got there, got to talk to the family, got to meet some of the people I hadn't met before. But really talking with Chad and Daniel, man, it was awesome seeing the impact the podcast has had on them. Afterwards, Chad was sharing his story with me, and he had tears in his eyes sharing about his background and how much this podcast is has helped him. And by the way, we need to have a couple of those guys on. That would make a great episode. So there's a little teaser. But here's the coolest part. In the middle of the concert, totally unexpected, had no idea, had no clue, this is what happened. One of the things that that has been interesting about this year is I found myself with more free time on my hands, and that is not always a a good thing. I like to stay very, very busy, and so I'll sometimes, if I have free time, I will read a book, and I've been going back and forth to Atlanta a lot with waterproofing basements. That's what we've been doing uh, during the week in the pandemic, but I started uh, listening to podcasts this year, and if you go on uh, Apple Music, there are a ton of different podcasts on there. And I saw a podcast that was advertised, and I saw it come up. It was called The Recovering Fundamentalist Podcast. And I thought, The Recovering Fundamentalist uh, Podcast. Well, I grew up in a, in a pretty strict church. As a matter of fact, we were not um, allowed to have drums in the music at our church. And it was, it was probably our music pastor's fault. Um, that was our dad. And so our dad, our dad travels and sing with us. But we, we were very strict on music growing up. And so, uh, and then as we got older, uh, dad started allowing us to listen to some other genres of music. And you'll hear that influenced in, in the Ball Brothers uh, things. And so I saw this Recovering Fundamentals podcast and I thought, what is that about? I'm probably not going to agree with anything that they have on there. And I started listening and realized that a couple of the guys that were on the podcast were right from this area, from Ringgold and from Trenton. And uh, our friend Nathan Cravat was on there. And I got to messaging on Facebook the other day and I asked him if he would come and be with us here tonight. So Nathan, he's the only guest that is here that is not family or not working behind the scenes. But I'll tell you this, there are a lot of people that I have grown up with. There are a lot of people that I have met over the years that have been hurt by a church situation somehow and that is so unfortunate and this podcast is helping people heal that have been hurt by a bad church situation I'm so thankful that God has surrounded me with great people in my life I don't share a similar story that some of these people went through by being in a bad church experience I've had some of the best pastors Um, we love Pastor Joel here at Peavine our pastor before that was our dad who now uh, works uh, with the Ball Brothers and so we've had the opportunity to have some great men of God speak truth into our life from a very young time. But as I've been listening to this podcast, I found out that not everyone's experience is the same. And some have drifted away from the Lord in this podcast. So if you're if you're one of those people or you want to check it out, check out the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast. I guarantee you, wherever you're at in your spiritual walk, it will be a blessing to you. Man, how awesome is that to get that awesome shout out from the Ball Brothers, the fact that they recognize that the Recovering Fundamentalist is a ministry uh, that's just incredible. They they would take the time on their live concert to talk about the ministry of the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast. Thank you so much. 
I agree. I think that's taking a big step with all the folks that were watching, knowing that world. I mean, for them to call out, not just to say that we like the podcast, but to talk about it and elaborate about it, man. Ball Brothers, you got some fans right here. They have over 330,000 friends and followers on Facebook. That's that's unbelievable. Yeah, it's incredible. The only thing that kind of hurt my feelings, JC, the only host that they recognized was Nathan Cravat. So you and I, we don't exactly. exist. I, I text him. I was in town. I was like, man, I wish I would have known about this. We went home for the weekend, and uh, it's all good. Oh, well. Hey, I'm excited about the episode today. We got the man, the myth, and the legend, Josh Tice, on the podcast. And uh, I think this is going to be a good one. This is a two-parter, as we're going to talk and just learn a little bit about Josh. And then the second one's going to be all about the Idea Network and the summit that's coming up in Vegas, January 25th and 26th. We are excited. It's going to be good. Y'all ready to jump into the podcast? Yes, sir. I'm ready. Let's go. In three. You know what makes women stupid is college. Jesus was not a bartender. Hi, man. Two. You have lost your mind. Long tongue heifers have given me a lot more trouble than heifers wearing breeches. And you know that. Say amen right there. One. Let me tell you something, bozo. They'll be selling frosties in hell for this boy. Put on a pair of pink underwear. Amen. I sucked my thumb till I was 14 years of age. Hi, man. Everybody, thanks for tuning in to the Recovering Fundamentalist Podcast. We're your hosts, Brian, Nathan, and JC. Hey, we want to thank our sponsors, Free Life Soap. You can check them out today by going to the recoveringfundamentalist.org. Click on the Free Life Soap tab, use your promo code RFP, and you'll be surprised. We make no money off of Free Life Soap. This is all for Miss McCribbin getting her incredible, incredible company started. We, we took some heat on that this week about making all this profit off of Free Life Soap. I mean, come on. We're selling bars of soap. How much money are we going to make off of soap? It is incredible soap. It's good soap and good beard oil, but we're not making money off of it. We're helping Miss McCribbin, who has a phenomenal ministry and business going. But if there's anybody else out there that does want to pay us money to be an official sponsor, we don't have any free sponsorships left, but anybody who does want to be a sponsor, we've got a spot open because Pod Life Houses, if you have a business, listen to this, they actually stepped back because they said they were getting too much traffic and they couldn't keep up with it. So if we have any business owners out there that want to advertise, this is an incredible place to start. Well, I just want to say to the pastor who assumed that we're making all this money, that we want to report on how many hours a week he studies, how many hours a week he visits, how many hours a week he does his pastoral duties, so that we can make sure that his salary is not exorbitant (laughs) in comparison to his effort. So before he calls us out, why doesn't he submit all of his information so we can know how he's profiting on the ministry? That sounds like something a recovering fundamentalist would say. Ooh, there it is, <laughs> right there. Anyhow, go to Free Life Soap, buy some soap. It would make great stocking stuffers, and you can get that today. We also want to thank Jay Radio. Hey, guys, I am fired up because coming in just a few weeks, talking about Christmas presents, you can get somebody in your life a trip to Vegas and meet up with us at the Idea Summit. It's going to be an incredible two days, January 25th and 26th in Las Vegas. We're going to be hanging out there. We have a meetup that's going to be taking place. We're also going to be recording two episodes, one live episode. The other one's going to be a Q&A. Our wives are coming with us. You heard them on the podcast last week, and we are absolutely fired up to get to Vegas. The RFP coming to Vegas, it's going to be on a whole nother level. I am so excited, guys. Absolutely. And by the way, our wives did so amazing last week. Yeah, they did. Yes, they did. We've gotten so much great feedback from that. They were honest, they were real, they were insightful, they were spiritual. JC paid his wife a compliment that I can't believe ended up on the podcast. It was just a great episode, surprise after surprise. Brian, I got in trouble with my wife when I went home because she said that you and Denise were around 80% of the time holding each other's hands, and I think we're down somewhere around 38% of the time. So I'm going to have to work on my hand-holding game, man. I appreciate that. Thanks thanks for throwing me under the bus there. Well, there's nothing more relaxing than riding down the road and holding your wife's hand and 
talking to her and I mean the the whole environment just starts to smell like rose petals and it's it's just an it's an amazing experience. Can I describe to you what it's like riding down the road with my wife? <laughs> Every 12 seconds she's yelling at me to slow down, to speed up, that I'm going to hit the car in front of me. What am I doing? Stop playing on my phone. Like it it's just total chaos. I've ridden with you and and she is 100%, right to do 100%. every <laughs> Bit Every of bit of it. Can I let y'all know why I don't hold my wife's hand while we're driving? Because I'm swatting at kids. We're handing drinks back. <laughs> we're throwing gummies back there. We're yelling, stop fighting. Put your shoes on. Whose feet smell like butt? Like we are, it is disgusting when you ride in our car and somebody's fighting and it's always great. That's why I don't hold my wife's hand in the car. But JC, you're an inspiration to dads. The other night when I called you and it's like 10 o'clock at night and JC was in the line at cookout to get all of his kids a slushy and they're screaming in the background and they're going nuts. And JC's telling me that he he's fulfilling this tradition that they have. He takes the kids to get a slushy at cookout. JC, if more pastors would do that, there'd be more pastors, kids that love Jesus. So dude, you're a rock star. Thanks, boss. It's something that we definitely tried to do and start one night a week. We go down. They got this like $1.50 Cheerwine slush. It's ice cream and Cheerwine float. And we got really scared when we moved from Ringgold to Statesboro that we weren't going to have one. But lo and behold, there's a cookout so we can keep slushy night going. So it's just something, especially after what we talked about last week with, you know, the Hamblin thing where he's talking about you can't be at your kids' ball games and and piano recitals and all that because ministry has to come first. I'm sorry. I believe what we said last week on the episode, family first is our motto. JC, I couldn't agree more. And I have a great perspective on that because I'm one of those kids whose dad was an evangelist. And my dad traded time with us for the ministry. My dad never came to any of my ball games. My dad wasn't at my seventh grade graduation. My dad wasn't at any of those things, and it caused me to have a deep resentment for the ministry. So I'm the kid who experienced that. And, you know, we were traveling and singing with him, and even then, Nathan, we weren't with him because he was always at the table with the other pastors, and we were always expected to sit at the next table and be quiet and act like we were perfect because, after all, we didn't want to damage dad's ministry. And... um I grew up experiencing that. So family first as a motto, that that sounds right to me, and I believe it's right in the eyes of God. Well, the guy that we have on the episode with us tonight is definitely a believer in that, and I'm interested in hearing Josh's story. Josh Tice is no stranger to people who have been around the IFB world and some people who have experienced a transition from the IFB world. So Josh Tice, it is so good to have you on the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast with us tonight. Hey, man, I'm just glad to be here for the big soap money. That's why I'm here. (laughs) No, in all reality, I'm joking about the big soap money. I'm thrilled to be here primarily because the more I've listened to your podcast over the last few months, the more I've come to realize that all three of you are men who love Jesus, love your wives, and love your children. And Mm. I connect with that. Now, do we hold some uh, similar history as it relates to the denominational background we come from? Absolutely. But I feel like I connect with you three on a deeper level. And that is your love for Jesus, love for your wife, love for your three children. My dad, my dad is exactly what you're talking about as it relates to someone who put their children first. Of the four siblings I have, all five of us, are walking with Jesus in the ministry, serving Christ to this day. And that's mm. not because they're perfect people. They were messed up parents. They would tell you they made a lot of mistakes, but they spent time with their kids above all, and they can continue mm. to stay in love. So I love that message that you gave from last week and what you've been talking about even in this episode. So thank you for that. Well, Josh, could we go back to your story? Tell us about your childhood your salvation, and then how you moved into ministry. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, my story obviously can begin with my mother and father's story. My dad was a a 1960s Jesus People convert. Uh, So the Jesus People movement was a big, big deal out here uh, on the West Coast. And uh, you had the Vineyard Movement and the Calvary Chapels and the Rockers for Jesus and the Long-Haired Hippies for Jesus. This is my dad, right? And uh, my dad, actually, a couple things happened to him in early in his story. 
Uh, he was born in 1955, so by the late 60s, as a late teenager, uh, he gets a hold of a few uh, audio cassette tapes of a preacher that he had never heard of before named Jack Hiles. And these tapes were talking about how to be a soul winner. Now, he himself didn't fully understand the gospel, he would tell you, at all, at all. And he starts going door to door, <laughs> telling people about Jesus as a long-haired hippie, having no clue who Jack Hiles was or what he stood for in a lot of ways, and uh, telling people about Jesus. The next memory he had was of a guy selling large print King James Bibles on television named Jerry Falwell. And he mm. said, if you come to my college here in 1970-whatever, uh, you can be a part of this new college that I'm starting. Well, he's 18 years old. He's like, yeah, I got nothing better to do. I might as well go out there. So he <laughs> arrives in Lynchburg, Virginia, becomes uh, one of Jerry's, uh, Jerry's boys out there, meets my mother, falls in love, and uh, experiences those early days of Lynchburg Baptist College or whatever it was called. And, uh, and then came right out to Las Vegas in 1977 and started Liberty Baptist Church. So I was born and raised in that. We didn't have a lot of connections when it comes to uh, a lot of IFB. That was pretty much it. We had one evangelist that would come down occasionally. We, had, we supported a lot of missionaries, but we were pretty much uh, super autonomous from that point, which in my early childhood, I can remember quite a bit. Um, uh, a lot of not having a lot of the same rules that I later learned in the IFB world. Uh, we listened to what we would consider contemporary Christian music today. At that point, Sandy Patty. We'd listen to Southern gospel music. We'd listen to uh, you, wild man. Yeah, we were wild. We were. It was crazy. Uh, <laughs> and then things began to shift in our home and in that ministry. Um, probably when I was about twelve, thirteen, fourteen years old. So your dad was in Lynchburg. Do you realize that's only about 50 miles from where I am? No kidding, really? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Lynchburg now looks a lot differently than it did when your dad was there. But, you know, Dr. Falwell was so cool. Um, he had yeah. this gift for remembering people's names. And he would be in a room full of pastors, and he would ask everyone at the table. It could be 20, 30 people. He would ask everyone to say their name. They would only say their name once. For the rest of the day, he would call everybody by their name, and you could see him two years later, and he would still call you by your name. That was an amazing gift. But how how did Dr. Falwell's ministry influence your dad's ministry? Because it's it's really cool that your dad had that, that brush with Jack Kyles, and then he ended up in Lynchburg. Um, you know, that there had to be some balance there. Yeah, it was interesting. Um, I mean, by the way, my son is going to be out at Lynchburg. Uh, he's going to be at Liberty University next year. He'll be joining there. So whenever he, get, he gets hungry or needs to do his laundry, I'll send him out to your house, Brian. Hey, we'll absolutely take care of him. I can promise that. So the balance that my dad and mom had was, number one, uh, family first. Number two, church planting, soul winning, this kind of thing. Um, and so he was always able to look to that balance that Jerry Falwell brought, I think, all the way through. Um, all the way through the early 80s. I mean, if you look at Jerry Falwell's history, it was all the way even up until 1984 that he was holding that giant conference with 25,000 people in Washington, D.C. called the Fundamentalists. So still at that point, he was holding on to that title and primarily because he watched in the 70s as a group of people uh, hijacked that title and were beginning to wrestle over it. it, it historically mm. is what I think took place. Yep. Um, but after that conference in 1984, he let that title go. Um, and the concept of independent Baptist really, for him, he saw it going a completely different direction. In that same time frame, uh, in that same time frame, probably about 10 years later, I, I began to see my, my, our church in Las Vegas become more conservative in those specific independent Baptist ways, probably because of the connections my dad began to make and the networks he began to run in. So Josh, that's interesting. I actually have a connection. I was on staff at a Calvary Chapel church for a while. So there's a lot of intersections in our stories here. And Chuck Smith had an incredible impact on the world. My mom and dad were hippies in the 70s and met Christ right before I was born. So uh, my life totally changed directions. And uh, so tell us about your experience and how growing up as a pastor's kid led to you stepping yeah, into the ministry. Sure. Well, uh, when it comes to my own personal salvation story, um, I was five years old. We were having family devotions, and my dad 
uh, told a story about a little boy who received Jesus as a savior. And I remember, I remember just genuinely hearing that and thinking, I, I need to do that. So I talked with dad after, and I prayed to receive Jesus. Hmm. And then at seven years old, I was at camp and I prayed to receive Jesus. And then when I was 10 years old, I got saved again, subsequently baptized at least four or five times because I was a pastor. Kid, oh, right? good Baptist yeah. boy. So I got saved plenty yeah. of times, plenty of times. <laughs> <laughs> but when it comes to what I probably truly, the Lord probably truly saw the innocence of my heart was at the age of five, giving my life to Christ and receiving his salvation. Yeah, I had that same experience and multiple baptisms, multiple salvations, multiple conversions. And and I say the same thing. I think at every point of the journey, I was sincere. And I think there was a growing awareness of grace and of who Christ was. But there was a point in my life where it quit being just kind of a game. And I totally surrendered my life to Christ and began truly walking with him as a disciple. I got saved every time they preached on the second coming and they talked about that night when you're going to wake up and you're going to run through the house and your mom and dad's going to be gone and you're going to run into the bedroom of your little sister and she's going to be gone and you're going to run to the crib of your little brother and he's going to be gone and you're going to realize that you've been left behind and you're going to spend an eternity in hell I mean, every single time I heard that, I'm I'm like, oh dear God, I don't want to, I don't want my mom and dad to be gone. I don't want my little sisters to be gone. And so, um, yeah, I got saved every single time they preached on the second coming of Christ. I think every time I watched a uh, Thief in the Night, man, I would get resaved. I mean, that was a scary yeah. movie, guys. Come on, man. And then you had the Burning Hell and <laughs> all those movies that yeah. they would show. And then you've got to remember, I was in the revival mm. culture. The goal of the meetings that I was in as a child and a young boy, the goal of those meetings was to have as many converts as they could possibly have. So that was the direction of the majority of the sermons. I remember getting saved so many times at these camp meetings. I would get so scared that the rapture would happen if my parents wouldn't answer their call or if I paged my dad and he wouldn't call me back on the number. I'd end up calling the church secretary just to hear her say Temple Baptist Church. I'd be like, okay, Rhonda Perry's there. I'm good. The rapture hasn't happened yet. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, I was going to tell you that that whole uh, scare tactic with the second coming with your brothers and sisters, that wouldn't have worked on me because you didn't know my brother and sister. <laughs> So you had more confidence in your salvation than you did their salvation. <laughs> what does that say about your siblings? Let's just say I probably didn't have a lot of confidence in any of ours. <laughs> we had a guy at Tennessee Temple on the Phillips dorm, Phillips second. His name was Shane Walton. And uh, if anybody's listening to this that went to Tennessee Temple with me, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. But we all put our clothes, laid it out in the hallway. We had our dorm rooms open with like clothes laying out on the bed. Somebody put their flip-flops in the shower. We had a toothbrush sitting in the sink with the water running. And we all <laughs> gathered down in our RA, Jared Lester's room, and blew a trumpet. And Shane come out. He started freaking out, thinking the rapture happened. That guy got saved every chapel, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. He's at the altar getting <laughs> saved. <laughs> he is still permanently scarred. But the funny thing is, that was kind of our lives. Don't you agree? Yeah, in a lot of ways. And I think it came from a good place in that most of these folks had a genuine desire to make sure that the the lost sheep, those who, who, who were supposed to be saved, those who were wandering through and needed to hear the gospel understood that, uh, look, I mean, we have heaven to gain and hell to lose. So let's make sure the gospel is clear as possible. And then we pastors, kids and evangelist kids are the collateral damage in the back that are getting saved like 15 times. Jesus, please. I swear I'll be good this year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so my call to ministry, when I really genuinely felt like God was calling, I'm one, I'm one of those kids that always wanted to be a preacher. I saw my dad want to be a preacher. I always wanted to be a preacher. Uh, never was there a time where I had this huge moment where I was running away from God on my tricycle down the street, hope, hoping that God didn't smite me. I always kind of wanted to do this. But my family and our church started getting highly connected with um, a certain circle within the IFB. Um, and that would be the uh, Bill Rice Ranch and West Branch of the Bill Rice Ranch. So I worked at the West Branch of the Bill Rice Ranch for five summers. And it was my First summer there, at the age of 14, 15 years old, that I heard somebody preach the uh, preach about giving your life to God or something like that. And this was real deal, man. God spoke to my heart 
I want you to be a, I want you to be a preacher. I went forward. I spoke to a counselor. We prayed. I gave my life to being a pastor. And it was during that time that God really began to grow me. But it was also during that time where we began to have our introduction to some of the peculiar aspects of this particular denomination that we were not necessarily connected to. Dress standards, music standards, KJV onlyism, this kind of thing. So you weren't really introduced to fundamentalism until after you had accepted the call to preach the gospel. Well, when you say fundamentalism, as has been mentioned on this podcast multiple times, and those who are just joining us and learning about this podcast, I'll mention it again. Fundamentalism as it, as it relates to cultural fundamentalism, yes. Uh, fundamentalism as it relates to the fundamentals, the historic fundamentals of the faith. My dad was always a fundamentalist. I mean, he came from Jerry Falwell's background, right? We grew up going to BBF meetings, and the type of BBF meetings that we had went to, there were some pretty open-minded BBF individuals. Uh, so it wasn't really until we got closely connected within that circle that connected us to Pensacola Christian College and, and so forth that we began to see the, um, the stress of importance on, let's say, dress standards or the stress of importance on music standards. Um, now, my dad really preferred the King James Version for many, many years, and that's because he began to have a strong relationship with another independent Baptist in Las Vegas who was highly influenced by Peter Ruckman. And hmm. so that's how we began to have that connection to the King James Version issue. So, but when it came to things like music, I can remember, I remember having an argument with a guy one time. Uh, I was probably 16, 17 years old. He was a graduate from Bob Jones University, a couple years older than me. And he was talking to us about the wicked, godless Christian music we would listen to. And, and I'm, I'm, tell, I'm telling you, this would be like um, Southern gospel music he's, he's upset with. And he said, why do you constantly listen to this uh, fleshly, worldly, godless uh, Christian music? And my buddy, who came from my church, grew up the same way I did, he looked at him and said, all you ever listened to is Phantom of the Opera. Well, you never listen to Christian music. Like, how are you judging <laughs> right. us on our Christian music and all you listen to is secular classical or Phantom of the Opera? And I'll never forget that because I thought, what a, what a great point for yeah. this individual who really didn't have a diet of Christian music but wanted to spend his life judging everybody else's Christian music. Wow. wow. So we grew up we grew up within that circle and I got to tell you my time within those those folks was absolutely incredible. We met a lot of great people. God really protected our local church in Las Vegas from a lot of that extremism. Um just I think because Las Vegas is a mission field, it really is an island and so we were protected away from a lot of the insanity of the type of things I've heard you talk about on this podcast, things I've heard in other podcasts. But when I turned 18 years old, I went to Pensacola Christian College. Uh, uh, where I did begin to get even more introduced to various circles, uh, where I began to learn that the independent Baptist movement was not monolithic. Um, right. Not everybody that called themselves independent Baptist was like the church that I came from. Uh, they had extremely strong tendencies toward legalism, many of these, these places. They had a strong uh, uh, proclivity toward hyper-separatism. And they really had three things that I've noticed about all six IFB circles that they do have in common. They have the big three, right? The big three dress, uh, the big three standards, Bible standards, dress standards, music standards. They have a, uh, a, a prone or a proclivity toward legalism, and they've got a strong affinity for hyper-separatism. Mm. And, and I began to see that within the circles that, um, that I was at. Not that I didn't enjoy my time, not that there weren't incredible people there, but uh, I began to meet a lot of people that um, that called themselves independent Baptist, but were not the type of independent Baptist that I remember dad being. Mm -hmm. So, Josh, I think it's great that your story highlights that not all independent Baptists are the same, that there are those who are solid. They love Jesus. And just by virtue of their upbringing or the place of their conversion or even the circumstances of their conversion, they are independent Baptist by virtue of that. But then there's that other group of independent Baptist that would be those that we would be talking most often about. The thing that concerns me is there seems to be a real confusion on the part of the people who are in that group that we're addressing, who believe that they're in the group of independent Baptists that are are just, you know, holding on to the fundamentals of the faith and are balanced and are concerned with truth. 
I think there's some some confusion in the group. And then the other thing that really concerns me, independent Baptists are very defensive, even across those lines of one another. For example, the independent Baptist movement is harboring Tony Hudson, who has lied multiple times from the pulpit about various things and various people. And yet, if you mention Tony Hudson or you call him out on things, what happened to me this past week online will happen. Someone accuses me of of damaging the faith that that somehow I'm against Christ and and the church. How do you think people should distinguish the difference between those two groups? That's a great question. Brian, I would not divide the independent Baptist world into two circles. I divide it into six specific circles. And I just actually recorded an episode of The Idea Talks, which is our podcast, that dissects the six different circles of the IFB and how oftentimes these six circles, though they're not monolithic, they do have some things in common. And one of the things in common that they have is they love to snipe at the other five circles. And um, I I do find it interesting that uh, oftentimes there will be hyper-separatism among them, and then other circles will spawn out of them, or there'll be people that leave in totality. But I think as I I look at it, man, the circles that I see historically is you have the BBF, the Bible Baptist Fellowship. I mean, this goes all the way back to J. Frank Norris and his split with G.B. Vick. The Bible Baptist Fellowship is where you get Liberty University. This is how you get Jerry Falwell. The Bible Baptist Fellowship, in combination with the Southwide Baptist Fellowship and the uh, and the World Baptist Fellowship, uh, come together and they bring together what we call the International Baptist Network. This is a large group of people. We're talking a total of sixty-five hundred churches, by far the largest IFB circle. But if you speak to somebody in one of the other five circles, they barely even recognize that anybody in the BBF is independent Baptist. That's what's amazing to me. Then you have its own circle that spawns out of the BBF, and that's Liberty University and Jerry Falwell, which has become its own incredible thing, right? But people Mm -hmm. still in this world today, if you ask anybody in the other five circles, is Liberty University part uh, independent Baptist? They'd be like, oh, they're not independent Baptist. And the answer is, why are they not? They're autonomous. They're Baptistic. They came from, historically, the independent Baptist movement. They have some ties to the SBC, but they are not a Southern Baptist school. And so technically, they would be that group. That third group that I look at would be what we call the Jack Hiles circles and its derivatives. Uh, when I say derivatives, I'm talking about the smaller um, the smaller schools that were spawned from Hiles, which are many, but the four largest being Crown and Heartland and West Coast and and uh, the one up in um, in Northern California. I always forget the name of it. But that that kind of Hiles group has its own flavor, its own idiosyncrasies, its own interests. But then you have the Bob Jones circle, the Bob Jones circle, which then spawned obviously Arlen and Becca Horton, who are some of my heroes, and Pensacola Christian College. But that they have their own interests. And this is what's interesting about these circles. Some of these circles have a strong passion toward one of the uh, three distinctions of independent Baptists, like the Bob Jones circle, very passionate about music, not so interested in the version issue. And then you've got like the camp meeting circle, very interested in, uh, in, in the version issue, but maybe their music is a little bit more open-minded. And so you'll find, you'll find that these folks will then snipe at each other. So you got the, then you've got, well, I mentioned the camp meeting circle, and then you've got the GARB, G-A-R-B-C. The GARB churches have been historically independent Baptist before the independent Baptists separated with J. Frank Norris out of the Southern Baptist Convention, but they highly associated with GRBC uh, with many independent Baptists over the last 80, 90 years. So these circles are fascinating to me. And what's amazing to me is if you come from one specific circle and you hear another circle say something either positive or negative about independent Baptists, you immediately assume they're talking about you. And this is what I've even seen as I've listened to this podcast. There are people that are extremely confused. You're talking about specific groups of people within independent Baptists. The problem is we all use the same moniker. We all use some of the same terms, and we all have these three things in common. We're focused on the big three, big three separation issues. We're focused on hyper-separatism, and we're focused, and we have a bent toward legalism. And so this is what seems to tie us together. But I do think there's a lot of misunderstanding between those groups. 
Wow, that's incredible. I've never heard it broken down like that before in those six groups. I knew there were multiple groups, but that that's a great way of classifying them. Well, and 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 I didn't touch into you've got then you've got some of the the extremists. I mean, you got crazy people. I'm sorry, you got crazy people like Steven Anderson out there, um, or you've got the extent of the the uh, uh, the Ruckman extension that goes out through guys like Sluter. So you've got some of these guys that are really not connected to anybody who are attempting to create their own little groups, their own little circles. Uh, but it is fascinating, and I think the reason we have hyper separatism so connected in us is because the independent Baptist movement began as a separatist movement. They began as a, as a, uh, I mean, it is what it is, a rebellion toward the cooperative program program of the 1930s when the SBC said, Hey, we're in the middle of the depression. We got to do something to raise $75 million for missionaries. And J Frank Norris came out along with like 150 other pastors and said, there ain't no way you're telling us to do that. And then they spent the next 50 years talking about how bad the Southern Baptists were. And how terrible the Southern Baptists were. And then whenever you are part of the, or some of the independent Baptists begin to say, hey, we got to fix some of the problems here. How dare you correct us? How dare you speak like you say, sometimes Brian, against the man of God. When the fact is the independent Baptist movement was built on the premise from 1934 to 1984, ridiculing an entire other denomination from which we came out of. So I think the hypocrisy is very obvious. Yeah, it is. And it's interesting that the Southern Baptist Convention has had a, a very conservative reformation, and they've moved away from this liberalism that kind of sparked the departure of the IFB from the Southern Baptists. And a lot of times I see Southern Baptist churches truly preaching the gospel a lot better than some of the independent Baptist churches. So the whole prophecy about the Southern Baptist Convention going liberal and leading to modernism, it it never seemed to come true. Sure, a few churches in that movement did that, but the majority of the churches are very conservative gospel-preaching churches. You know, as in my own state of Virginia, there are actually two conventions. There's the BGV, which would be the liberal convention, and then there's the SBCV, which is Southern Baptist Conservatives of Virginia. And, man, those guys— are rock solid on the gospel. Those guys are taking a stand. Uh, As a matter of fact, uh, a little while back when there was a march against abortion, thousands of Southern Baptist conservatives showed up in support of that march. Over and over and over again, they, they fall on the conservative side of things, and yet there would be a generalization made in the independent Baptist movement about all Southern Baptist as if they're all this entity that's godless and liberal. And it's just not, it doesn't stand up to the scrutiny, not when you actually meet these guys and you study their doctrine. And this all goes back to the 1980s, uh, conservative resurgence of the 1980s, Nathan, that you, you mentioned. I have a theory, by the way, of why we saw such a rise in the independent Baptist movement in church growth in the 1970s, and then a steady steep decline in the 1980s. What I think took place is the normal dads and deacons and moms and godly women of these SBC churches began to see the same thing everybody saw in the 1970s. There was genuine liberalism that was creeping into the Southern Baptist Convention, but there were powerhouse heroes that fought Mm. for the conservative resurgence. It's all historically documented. Then what takes place? Well, what takes place in the 1980s, it's fascinating, is you see these turning of these churches to be more conservative. And then all of a sudden, daddy and, and deacon and mom said, you know what, maybe we'll go back to the church we came from. And instead of in the 1970s, where you see this huge growth of these 1970s independent Baptists, and Albert Towns writes about the 10 fastest growing churches in America, and nine out of 10 are independent Baptists. What happened? The answer is they all went back to their churches. And then what independent Baptists had to do is they had to understand or they had to make a distinction between our church on this side of the road and your Southern Baptist church over there. And the only thing that they can distinguish themselves were we dress more conservatively. Our music is still comes from the hymn books and we have the right Bible. And so then you see from the 1980s and 90s, a heavy emphasis of these three particular issues to differentiate our betterness from them. So now please go to our institutions, please go to our camps, please go to our uh, mission boards, and please come to our churches. Because even though they're conservative, they're not really, they are now liberal because they don't have these three distinctions. 
Yeah, and to keep that narrative alive, you have to keep beating that dead horse of we're better than them, which is totally divisive, totally proud, arrogant, separate from what the gospel is supposed to be. Now, I think I, I would say this. I, I, not everybody did that. And, and, yeah. and, if, and if I'm honest, look, I did that in my early preaching. Mm. I said a lot of those things. I talked about Southern Baptists. I preached against Billy Graham. I'm 40 years old, but when I was 24, 25, 26, I'm talking about Billy Graham this and Billy Graham that. Why? Because I think a lot of these guys were parroting, like I was, what we had heard. That's Until right. we begin to study the Bible and realize, wait a second, exactly this is right. not right. This is not mm. right. It's kind of like uh, Nathan Bryan and I, we had this incredible Black Friday t-shirt that I think only a few people bought that said, forgive us for what we said while we were IFB. <laughs> <laughs> that is the worst t-shirt in the history of t-shirts. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to Justin Knight for making that, but man, our three faces look like death on there. It was great. <laughs> No, no, it wasn't great at all. But I think all of us, you know, we've talked about that, Josh. There's there's times, there's truth in that statement. Kind of going off what we knew, I know for me, what got the amens, what got the offerings, because I was traveling as an evangelist, going around preaching at youth conferences, what I knew would get me invited back to speak at these youth conferences, these youth camps, these youth rallies. And it was almost like, there was a standard that I had to keep in order to keep the phone calls coming and the the trail ablazing, if you will, because you had to say the right things and look the right way and talk the right way. And if you didn't, well, the brethren just shunned you. And there was a big line in the sand moment when it was like, you know, I'm going to I'd rather preach the Bible and say what the Bible says than what it's supposed to say to fit a context within a culture that I'm trying to stay in. JC, I see that. I, I call it the five-year rule. I, I see guys going into the ministry, and after five years, they have to wrestle with, am I repeating the same things that I've always heard? And then they get into the Word of God. Progressive sanctification takes a hold of them. They become yeah. more like Jesus, and they're like, oh, my gosh, I got I to gotta make a shift. Yeah. And after five years, from another perspective, they're going to say, oh, you're a bunch of compromisers. But what mm -hmm. happens is suddenly you're like, you know what? I don't care what the cost is. I don't care what's going to happen to my church, my ministry, my denominational prowess. I've got to do what is right. I've yeah. got to do what the Bible says. That's right. Josh, it is unfortunate that all of us to a certain degree are like phonographs and we just repeat what has been spoken into us. And it's not really even our message. We're just repeating the message that someone else has preached to us. And when we finally accept the truth, truth over tradition, truth over fairy tale, truth. When we finally bifurcate and, and we separate from that and we pursue truth, then, then we're accused of abandoning the faith. When really we're not abandoning the faith, we're pursuing the faith. We're pursuing the truth. Yeah, and it's not a move into liberalism. It's actually a move into biblical Christianity where the Bible becomes the standard. Yes, I have a friend who pastors in Australia. His name is Robert Bax. He wrote the book Worship Wars. He said this, they call it a slippery slope. He said, I call it a courageous climb. Mm, yeah. Wow, wow that's, that's good. really good. I think what happens quite a bit with those who would really sorrow over those who would depart from some of these man-made standards is that they are reaping the rewards mm. of teaching us the basic principle of Baptist doctrine, and that is biblical authority. So what was sown into our hearts and minds across the board when it comes to most Baptist circles, including independent Baptist circles, was biblical authority, biblical authority. I was taught over and over, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? Then we would be taught a bunch of extra standards. Mm. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? Extra standards, extra standards. And then after five years of ministry, we're like, wait a second, the Bible doesn't say that. Yeah. And now what's happening is there's a generation that is waking up saying, okay, I can be true to these standards, uh, that are man-made, or I can see what the Bible actually says, and the Bible doesn't say that. So what is happening is the natural reaping of the rewards of the uh, original truths of some independent Baptists. Now we're waking up to that reality, and I think it's of God. I think it's a beautiful awakening. Uh, Josh, I agree completely, and the thing that offends me the most 
was something that was said recently about the three of us not by a man who was standing behind a pulpit that that we didn't care about the gospel that was actually his accusation that because we're no longer independent fundamental baptist somehow we've abandoned the gospel but the gospel is the treasure of the church the gospel is the central theme of the church the gospel is jesus the gospel is yeah. the power of god to salvation mm. i hate these false accusations that are made against people who just don't walk in step. You know, the independent Baptist uh, godfather or the uh, the Don who's under the godfather no longer has control over the minions, and we rebel against that. And we say, you know what, we're no longer walking in step under your authority, but we're going to walk in step with the truth of God's word. And the thing we hear is, you don't love the gospel. You don't believe the gospel. And and I and, and we were even accused of not preaching the gospel. And then we were also accused of not promoting the gospel on this podcast. Nathan, how many times have you given the gospel and how many times have you asked a guest in the closing moments of the podcast to give the gospel? Yeah, as as often as we can. And one of our listeners this week set off a firestorm, I guess you guys probably saw it, of talking about the podcast and all their old church members jumped on and started attacking them and attacking us. And you could tell they had never listened to the podcast. And so about halfway through, instead of arguing with them, I just listed out that we agree with all the fundamentals of the faith, yeah. that Jesus is Lord, that we're all sinners and that we need a Savior and Jesus is the only Savior. And there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And I just start listing out all these gospel truths. And then after that, I said, yet this is not good enough for you. You want us to give your extra biblical standards or we're just not good enough. And they never responded. It kills the narrative that we're not preaching the gospel. And I think it's a response out of fear because they feel like we're leading people into liberalism. But if you would just listen to what we're saying, that's that's the opposite of what we're trying to do. I think the culture that we just talked about that we preached in, because it's what we grew up in, even goes to those that are just attending an IFB church. I've sat in so many business meetings where they're talking about, you know, we're going to use the King James because it's how we've always done around here. It's, it's, they're creatures of culture that has always been. And to think outside of that box that is the IFB, that that legalism has taken over them, they're, they're not able to find the freedom that Jesus talks about that comes in the newness of life. Well, you know, today I actually started a brand new series titled Joy to the World, and I opened up the series by preaching uh, on Emmanuel, God with us, went all the way back to the Garden of Eden, dealt with man's sin, man's incapability of saving himself, that Emmanuel had to exist. God had to be with us for the purpose of redeeming us, then went to Psalm and read the verse that no man can pay the ransom for another man's life. Regardless of wealth or power, there's no man who can ransom another man's life from death and from eternal death in hell. Went all the way through to the fact that, you know, Christ fulfilled, you know, the verses in Hebrews that he fellowshiped with flesh, the Son of God, not previously flesh, but took on flesh communed with mankind in flesh, died, and through death and resurrection, overcame death and destroyed the devil. And then all the way through to we have not a high priest which cannot be touched by the feelings of our infirmities, that Jesus lived without sin on the earth so that he could identify with any trial or situation or circumstance that we will ever find ourselves in. Guys, I never preached the gospel with that clarity as an independent Baptist. Never. Because I never really appreciated the gospel because I was too busy preaching a series of standards that you needed to live up to versus the fact that no, Christ has redeemed us. And the ambition of the Christian life is to keep our hearts and our minds stayed on Jesus Christ. That's that's our greatest ambition. Brian, that's beautifully said. Look, I think when we lack the nuanced ability to distinguish between the gospel 
first-tier issues, second-tier issues, and tertiary issues, when everything becomes the most important thing, then nothing is the most important thing. And so, of course, we're going to spend most of our time dealing with the tertiary or third-tier issues rather than preaching the primary gospel of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. I've had conversations over the last decade with individuals over and over, pastors in, in these realms, in these independent Baptist circles, who will, who will fight about the most ridiculous third and fourth tier issues. Yeah. And I'll say, hey, but we agree on the most important things. And they will say, no, 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 we don't. The most important things are the inspiration of scripture, which means if you don't believe in the KJV, then you right. don't believe in the inspiration of scripture. Absolutely keeping not. people holy, which means keeping people away from bad music that they don't, they don't, they don't prefer. And, uh, and, and holy dress or whatever it might be. And when we, when we lack the ability to teach our seminary students and our Bible college students the difference, the nuanced ability to distinguish between secondary issues and the gospel, we're going to lose everything. You know, Josh, I believe the most important priority for this podcast, and I know your ministry is the gospel and the gospel going forward. And I think there's a, a myth that has been around the cultures that we grew up, that it's one anointed man that delivers it. But what I love is that God calls all of us to be ministers of the gospel. And I believe Amen. that the longer I'm part of this thing called church and doing ministry, that his plan for reaching the world is not just gathering with the basking in the anointing of one prophetic teacher but it's raising up people to work and be sent out by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's the gospel going forward. And that's why we are called to, uh, that's why we're recovering fundamentalists. We want to spread the gospel of the good news that anybody can be used of God to do incredible things. And I believe that's why you started the Idea Summit. And we're going to come back next week for part two. And we want to hear your whole entire idea about the Idea Summit and just break that down, and then talk about Vegas, because, baby, we coming to hang out with you in Vegas January 25th and 26th. You want to give a little plug for the Idea Summit? Hey, guys, you're going to love it there. I'm telling you, not only will you and your wives are going to love it, but everybody listening, I know what some are thinking. Come on, can I really get away? Look, you've never found a community of pastors that are going to such so immediately receive you and accept you as friends. We are your people. Yeah. Look, come on out. Have a great time. I don't care. Look, we have people at our group that are so conservative that they not only all have guns, their dogs have guns. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> you're going to love our group. But we also have people that think a little bit differently. And here's the thing that makes idea. I will talk about this. Now. An idea day is beautiful because it's not one guy sitting there telling rows upon rows how to do ministry from his right. perspective. It is a circle of people sharing the most amazing new ideas to progress their specific ministries in their context. Oh my goodness, you're going to love it. And get your tickets now because I'm telling you, it is not very expensive to come out to Vegas and they're beautiful hotel rooms. I can't wait. It's going to be fun. Coming up January 25th and 26th. Go to recoveringfundamentalist.org. Click on the Summit Day tab and use the promo code RFP Meetup to get your discounted ticket. Guys, this has been an incredible episode. We want to thank our sponsors, Free Life Soap, Miss McCribbin. Go to the recoveringfundamentalist.org. Click on the Free Life Soap tab. Use the promo code RFP and uh, help Miss McCribbin and an incredible, incredible company out. We want to thank our patrons of Patreon for just being absolutely incredible. The RFP family is strong, and uh, we are so thankful for our patrons of Patreon just helping us out every month, and uh, we love y'all. It's been a great episode. I can't wait till next week. Going to have Josh back on for part two of the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast. Y'all have a great week. Be sweet. Peace. Thanks for listening to the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast. Be sure to stop by our social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Give us a follow. Also, go to our website, recoveringfundamentalist.org. That's recoveringfundamentalist.org. There you can find Recovering Fundamentalist swag. You can get your t-shirts and hats. You can join our ex fundy community. See where we're going to be having some meetups. It's the recoveringfundamentalist.org. Be sure to join us next time for the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast.